So Alfred Dreyfus was a French artillery officer of Jewish descent, and he was a man who was intelligent, he was hardworking, and so he quickly rose to prominence there in the French military ranks. But it was in 1894 that he was secretly court-martialed for treason. He was stripped of his rank, and then he was sentenced to life imprisonment on Devil's Island, which was a small, desolate island off of South America. And yet it wasn't long before evidence began to mount that Dreyfus was, in fact, innocent of the charge of treason. And so his cause was taken up by leading intellectuals there in France and by artists, and they they cited anti-Semitism as part of the issue there in, in largely Catholic France. It turned out the true culprit had fled to England and even confessed that he was the one who had committed the treason. And in the end, the Dreyfus affair became one of the most controversial and one of the most polarizing political dramas in all of modern French history. And I trust you've all heard lots about it before. (laughs) Friends, but actually so much so that it was just three months ago that the the current French president, Emmanuel Macron, he actually... uh, launched and they opened really dedicating a museum in Paris to this whole affair. That's how much it affects French society even today. But I raise that just to to pose the question to you, have you ever been falsely accused? Have you ever been falsely accused? Maybe of a crime. Tragically, those things do happen, even in a nation like ours that prizes justice. Or maybe not so much in a court of law, but perhaps maybe by a, by a cunning co-worker seeking to get ahead, says false things about you, right, to drag you down. Or maybe you've been false by a fellow jealous student or by a bitter friend. Friend, if so, what should you do? How should you respond? Do we become bitter and vengeful? sort of scheming for revenge like Edmund Dantes and, you know, the Count of Monte Cristo? Or do we return to the scene of the crime and do we seek to exonerate ourselves like Harrison Ford and the fugitive? Do we seek to combat such false accusations with our own false accusations, right? Fight fire with fire, as they say. Should that be our response? Or do we just ignore it, you know, hope it all goes away? Friends, how should we respond? Well, I think it's questions like this that actually are going to bring us into our text this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. So I invite you to turn there now. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. You can find uh, 12 through 14 on page 964 of the Bibles in the seat backs before you. So if you don't have a Bible, uh, don't worry. You can find them right there, page 964. And as you turn, just recall from Gwen's scripture reading earlier, out of Acts 18, that Paul had spent over 18 months in Corinth. He had been uh, preaching the gospel. He had planted a church there in Corinth. And yet after Paul left, that church clearly stumbled. Because as John reminded us from 1 Corinthians 1 last week, it was a church that was divided by factions, right? Some were saying, I follow Paul. Others, I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. So they were making messiahs out of their own favorite ministers. And all the marks of ambition 
and individualism and, and prosperity and promiscuity, all those things that marked Corinthian culture, well, that was being reflected in their own gatherings together. The Corinthian church, you could say, was a circus of sin. If you read 1 Corinthians 1, you know what I mean. So, in fact, Paul writes four letters to the Corinthian church, right? The first one dealing largely with sexual immorality that we don't possess today. The second letter is the letter we know as 1 Corinthians. And yet it appears this second letter of Paul's, right, the letter of 1 Corinthians, it was met with some skepticism and some hostility because Paul actually had to deliver another letter, a third letter, which was sort of sharper and more direct, And this third letter is what Paul refers to as sort of his severe letter from 2 Corinthians 7. And some were apparently won over by this severe letter. They were challenged by Paul. They saw their error. They came back and they did not persist in their own rebellion. And yet some were still suspicious. And they were aided by this group of false teachers who were sowing seeds of doubt and division And they were saying, listen, Paul, I mean, he is unimpressive physically. He's weak rhetorically. He's very poor monetarily, and he's sick and suffering constantly. So how can someone, these false teachers say, how can someone as as weak and poor and seemingly as pathetic as Paul, how can this guy stand for a gospel that promises eternal riches and victory and glory in Christ, right? According to the world's wisdom, that makes no sense. And so the accusations about Paul spread. And so Paul has to write his fourth letter, right? The the book we know is 2 Corinthians. And in 1 to 11, we have the opening blessing. And there Paul goes right out and he says, actually, these afflictions you all are mocking me for, these afflictions are in fact the authenticating mark of my own apostolic ministry. And then here this morning in in 112, we're going to move from Paul's afflictions and he is going to begin to defend himself for the next six or so chapters from the accusations made against him. And friends, what will Paul say to these false accusations? And what does Paul's response have to teach us about our own response? Well, let's read 2 Corinthians 1, 12 to 14. Paul writes, for our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, And I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Now, many see these three verses as actually the main theme of the entire book, sort of the the central theme right there, 2 Corinthians 1, 12 to 14. And so how does Paul begin then his defense against these accusations? Well, notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't hire any attorneys, no higher-powered attorneys. He doesn't go into the courts of law. Paul actually appeals here to something greater, to a higher court and to a higher judge. He boasts, he says, verse 12, in the testimony 
of his own conscience. And then what he's going to do toward the end of 12 and through chapter 13 is he's then going to appeal to the Corinthians about their own knowledge of his conduct. Such that, verse 14, on the day of the Lord's coming, they can mutually boast in one another. So he's going to boast in his own conscience, remind the Corinthians of his conduct, so that at Christ's coming they can boast with one another. So notice how this idea of boasting really frames the section. He leads out in verse 12 with it, circles back in verse 14. And so at a high level, you could say Paul's arguing here that in the midst of false accusations, our boast is always in God's work and not our wisdom. So at a high level, that's what Paul's saying. But I think if we, if we drill a bit deeper, sort of double-click and, and go further in, Paul's arguing that a clear conscience, evidenced by godly character, ensures confidence at Christ's coming. So let me state that again, because that's going to sort of serve as a, a more thorough summary sentence that is actually just going to be our outline. Okay, so here it is. A clear conscience, Paul argues, evidenced by godly character, ensures confidence at Christ's coming. So let's think about that sort of sentence in its pieces. First, let's think about a clear conscience. First, let's think about a clear conscience. Because that is Paul's boast, he says. The testimony of our conscience. And yet we got to stop because, and recognize that this idea of Paul even boasting, well, it catches us a bit off guard. I mean, did we not learn last week in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 29, that God chose what was low and despised in the world so that no human being might boast in his presence? And isn't this the same Paul who says, let no one boast in men, and yet let his only boast be in what? The cross of Christ, Galatians 6. And in Philippians 3, verses 3 to 8, Paul is going to catalog all of these reasons why he ought to boast in the flesh. And yet as he catalogs them, he'll conclude and say, they're all rubbish, which is the ESV's sort of sanitized version of that actual Greek word. It's actually a rather crude Greek word that speaks to fecal matter. That's saying, that is the substance and sum of Paul's boast. Right? He's saying all that boasting and all these things of men, that's as valuable as what comes out of his rear. That's what Paul says, very colorfully. Now, we understand somewhat, because we think of that word boast, what do we think? Well, it grates on us. We think of someone who's arrogant, someone who's proud, someone who shows maybe lots of audacity, maybe lots of vanity. Right? We use that word braggadocious, which sounds like a great word, but if someone ever calls you braggadocious, it's not a compliment. And yet Paul refers to boasting, in fact, more in this letter than all of his other letters combined. And it turns out, Paul's saying, there is actually a kind of boasting that is justified. And it's in the testimony of the conscience as in a clear conscience. As in a clear conscience. Not the kind of boasting where we sort of point to the back wall and say, you know, listen, on that next pitch, right, I'm going to hit this one out of the park. You know, if you, Babe Ruth, I think it was the 32 World Series, right, he famously did that, sort of that kind of boasting. Or Muhammad Ali, right, when he was dancing and taunting, 
Cleveland Williams, like making a mockery of him and all the boasting. It's, it's not that kind of boasting Paul's talking about. Not the kind of boasting that focuses on our achievements, maybe our education or our children, accomplishments, wealth, success, strength, all those things we naturally and inherently love to boast in because it draws the attention toward us. Paul's saying, no, no, we don't want to boast in those things. We shouldn't take pride in those things. We shouldn't glory in those things. Corinthians, you do that. We ought not to do that, though. Paul says, if you really want to brag about something, if you really want to take pride in something, if you want to run your mouth for God, so to speak, here's something worth boasting in. A clear conscience. A clear conscience. So in the midst of his trial, Paul doesn't look to lawyers. He doesn't look to expert witnesses to take the stand. Paul actually calls his own conscience to the stand, and his own conscience will testify on his behalf. Now, when we speak of the conscience, sometimes that creates confusion, because sometimes Christians speak of the conscience as sort of the, the voice of God in the soul, or the conscience is the voice of God, right, the word of God within which is not quite right. It's, it's getting at something right, but it's not quite right because when God speaks, God speaks infallibly. He speaks inerrantly. He speaks truthfully. But our consciences themselves are not errant. They're not fallible, right? They're, or they are fallible. They're not infallible, right? They're not always truthful. Our consciences can sometimes excuse us when God, in fact, wouldn't excuse us. So Paul no doubt persecuted the church of God, as we read in Philippians 3, with a clear conscience, thinking he was doing what was right when in fact he was wrong. And when Christ came to him on the Damascus Road, he saw that it was wrong. So our consciences can wrongly excuse us. But they can also wrongly condemn us when God would not condemn us. So take back in 1 Corinthians 8, food sacrifice to idols. Many didn't think it was right they would take. And God says through Paul, hey, you know what? An idol, they don't exist. You can eat. They're not real. Our consciences, right, they need in the Bible, they need to be educated. Sort of like, you know, a scale that gets off. What do we have to do with our scales? We have to calibrate them. Every time I step on a scale, I'm like, yeah, I need to recalibrate this, right? It's reading a little heavy. (laughs) Right? Scales, they need to be recalibrated sometimes. Our consciences are like that. They're always a tick or two off or perhaps more one way or another. And so they have to be calibrated according to what? To God's word. So our consciences are right insofar as they align with God's revelation. So our conscience, you could say, is our own individual awareness. It's our own sense of what is right and what is wrong. And as human beings, we possess it uniquely because we uniquely are made in God's image. And our God is a moral God. And so we are moral beings and we make moral judgments. The danger is that our consciences will either be misinformed, as in they'll be incorrect, or the danger is that we'll just simply ignore our conscience. We'll ignore it. You know, we live in an age today, you know, in our own, our own culture where we prize, what do we prize, right? Authenticity, being true to ourselves. So anything that stands in the way of, of me being true to me, Right? The authentic me, however I want to define the authentic me, well, anything that would stand in the way of that is what? It's antiquarian, it's obscurantist, it's old-fashioned, maybe it's even bigoted, we would say. 
So think of the areas of gender and sexuality. We especially see that in today's world. Well, because our consciences make moral judgments, those consciences can often lead us to feel guilty. And therefore, guilt, we're told, well, guilt's harmful. Guilt is what robs people of joy in this genuine authenticity. Guilt robs us of our individuality. It steals our self-esteem. Guilt, therefore, is dangerous. The conscience itself can be dangerous. And so we seek to shut it off or turn it off, i.e. ignore our conscience. So we think of our conscience as some do as just like this puritanical ghost that still lives in the closet. It doesn't really exist or shouldn't. Or maybe it's just the regrettable shadow of some benighted past. But friends, it's always dangerous to ignore one's conscience. So one pastor has likened the conscience to sort of those early aircraft warnings. You know, if you're on a plane and you're coming toward a mountain range and your altitude is too low, right? Danger, pull up, danger, pull up. Liken the conscience to that. Similarly, it functions in our soul like pull up, pull up, i.e. escape danger. And we can ignore it. We can seek to silence it. But we do so to our own destruction. That's what Paul helps us see in Romans 1 and Romans 2. Which is why our job is to both educate our conscience and also obey our conscience. Because friends, there is nothing more valuable than a clear conscience. That's what Paul's helping us see. Nothing more valuable than a clear conscience before God. You know, it's said that a clear conscience is the softest pillow in the world. A clear conscience finally fears nothing and it can be taken by no one. So Christian, I wonder if you're here, I wonder what are you striving after this morning? What are you striving after this morning? What are you boasting in? What are you longing for? What are you driving at? And when was the last time a clear conscience fit into that equation? Driving at that, a clear conscience. You know, maybe there's a sin that you're secretly dabbing in, you know, perpetually just going back to, continuing to engage in. You know it's wrong, but you pursue it every way. And every time you do so, you step upon your conscience. And you trample that conscience. And therefore, you desensitize that conscience. And the risk, of course, is that you will step upon it and so deaden the conscience that it no longer speaks and warns, no longer functions the way it's meant to. And that in the Bible is a terrifying position when God gives us over in our consciences to sin. But you know, maybe you've come here and you wouldn't identify this morning as a Christian. But you know what I'm talking about. We all possess a conscience. And maybe your own conscience is convicting you in some ways. You've lived long enough to know that you are not the person you ought to be. But you have no idea how to become that person or how to be released of the bondage of the weight of the wrong and the error in your life. It's like a pack that just weighs on those shoulders. And the older you get and the more you live, the heavier it gets. Friends, the wonderful news of the gospel, the news that Paul himself experienced, was that we can actually be released of that burden. We can be freed of that guilty, condemning conscience. And God grants it. 
He's the one who gives it because the boast, our boast, ought not finally to be in us, but it's actually what Christ has accomplished through us. That's what our boast in, right? On the cross, Jesus died for sinners. So he took the guilt and the shame of sin. He took the power of sin in our lives and he put it to death on the cross and then laid it in the grave such that when he was resurrected, victorious and free, so we can be resurrected with him and know that. It's what you were hearing about in those baptismal testimonies earlier this morning. Delivered from sin, the shame and the power of sin. Friend, if you need that this morning, then God calls you to look to Christ, to repent of your sins, and to believe upon him, to trust him, and then to be set free. But friends, what does it exactly look like to possess this clear conscience that Paul himself can boast in? Well, that brings us to our second point. So, yes, a clear conscience, but that clear conscience is, secondly, it's evidenced by godly character. Secondly, it's evidenced by godly character. For the testimony of Paul's conscience is what? What's the content? Well, it's that verse 12. We behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. Now that word simplicity could also be translated integrity. As in, Paul acted without any kind of hidden agendas. There were no strings attached to his ministry. He was honest. He was forthright with the Corinthians. And that word for sincerity is really just a synonym. They're very similar words. But that word for sincerity speaks more to purity of motives. Something that is without mixture. Such that if you were to put it up to the light of the sun, it would be pure. It would be transparent. Right? There are no imperfections like that perfect diamond. And Paul's saying he conducted himself with that kind of integrity and purity. Not, he says in contrast, right, by earthly wisdom. Not in contrast by earthly wisdom. Now, many of us, we hear that word earth, and what do we think? I think ground, right? I think dirt. Paul's not saying our wisdom amounts to dirt. Though, ironically, actually, that's true too. That's not what he says. You can listen to last week's message for that. It's not that our wisdom is dirt. He's speaking here more to the wisdom of this age. He's speaking to the kind of worldly wisdom. So if any of you know Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, you know that Christian runs into a character called Mr. Worldly Wise Man. Right? That's the kind of worldly wisdom in mind here. And the Mr. Worldly Wise Man is from what? He's from the, the town of Carnal Policy. And so that figure and the worldly wisdom of the Corinthians would would be that wisdom that values ambition and conquest and getting ahead and, and making a name for oneself. And again, that brings us right back to 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 31, right, where John was. The, the kind of wisdom the Corinthians themselves were tempted and obviously prone to boast in. Now, I wish I could take credit for, for planning the sermon card this way. Doing a break at verse 11, having John go preach, 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 31, and then have me jump back in, because that's the only reference to wisdom in all of 2 Corinthians right here. So that was the perfect passage to drop right in, and I would love to take credit for it, and we learned last week, John might take credit for it. <laughs> Many boast in him, right? He reminded us of all who boast in him. But don't let him fool you, right? This is actually how the Holy Spirit planned it. God is so gracious, right? 
Paul's saying, this is not only how I conducted myself in the world. Yes, that was evident to all with integrity, with purity. But he says even more to the point, end of verse 12, this is how I conducted myself supremely so, or especially so, he says, toward you. Toward you Corinthians. You know this. Right, right there, Paul's saying, come on, guys. I was with you for 18 months. I lived with you. I ministered among you. I ate with you. I wept with you. All of that. We did life together. You know me, and you saw me, and you know I lived above reproach. He's saying, I didn't resort to the kind of tricks of the trade that many do. I didn't manipulate. I didn't cheat to get ahead. I didn't preach one way and live a different way. He'll even say later in 2 Corinthians, I didn't take a salary from you, lest you all think I'm like those itinerant philosophers who just peddle philosophy for profit and money. He's like, I didn't want you to confuse me, so I actually took from other churches. He says, I, kinda, I stole from them so I could minister amongst you free of charge. You know, Nathaniel Hawthorne in the Scarlet Letter said, a pure hand needs no glove to cover it. And this is just one of a number of places where Paul is going to kind of raise his ungloved hand and he's going to assert his own integrity amongst them. But friends, how can Paul really claim this? Doesn't it sound like Paul's boasting in his own righteousness? Isn't Paul beginning to sound a little bit like a Pharisee? Isn't this what God was supposed to have delivered Paul from? Well, look carefully. That's actually not what Paul is saying. Notice he says he behaved with simplicity, and the ESV says godly sincerity. Literally, it just reads he behaved kind of with integrity and the purity of God. So another way to translate that is to translate it as some translations do. Right, the old NIV, the net does it like this. He lived with integrity and purity that comes from God. That's what he's saying. Paul's saying, this isn't my work. This comes from God. This is God's work in me. Paul's not seeking an ego boost, right, as he writes these verses. Paul doesn't need the Corinthians to celebrate him, but to celebrate what God has done in and through him. That's what he's calling them to. Which is why he says he behaved in this godly way, not in a worldly way. And he says he's done so, what, by, verse 12, the grace of God. So again, Paul makes it clear. Everything is about God's grace in his life. His teaching, his living. Paul says, I can't take any credit for this. None of us can take any credit for the goodness of God in our lives. It is but, as Paul says, by the grace of God. Is that not what we confessed when we sang earlier, right, in the, in the service? Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Same principle. And the Corinthians, ah, they didn't get it. We all struggle to get it. Because they tended to elevate themselves over others. Which is why Paul, in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, and I'm just reading from the CSB here, says, Who makes you so superior? That's what they like to do. We all like to do that, make ourselves superior. Who makes you so superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? If, in fact, you did receive it, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? Boom, right there. That's what Paul's getting at. 
you know, in the unity, uh, in the um, equipping hour class, unity and diversity, uh, there was teaching and, and it was, we were talking about this thing, this very, this very subject and Frank Hannon just noted, hey, there's this old expression there, but by the grace of God, I go, which is a little awkwardly worded. It's probably like some old King James version, but it gets at that idea, right? There, but by the grace of God, I go. As in, if it were not for God's grace in my life, that's exactly where I would be and I deserve to be there. Well, that's the heart of Paul. That's the kind of humility he has and that he expects Christians and these Corinthians themselves to model. Which means the more righteous you truly are, the less self-righteous you will be. So a spirit of legalism a spirit that likes to pride itself on what is and, and how one behaves and that's quick to condemn others while patting oneself on the back, if not outwardly, at least inwardly in the heart. Right? That's not the mark of authentic Christianity. That's actually the mark of the world. That's the mark of immaturity. That's the mark of an individual and that's the mark of a church that has never truly grasped the grace of the gospel. So the world... The world gets at this all the time in the sense that the world has become experts at pointing the finger at others and often pointing the finger in righteous indignation. And all sides of the aisle do it, right? The left and the right. Just turn on CNN and Fox News. All it is is finger pointing back and forth. None of us are immune from that instinct and I, friends, I know I have to watch this, right? I got lots of convictions. I got convictions about what the Bible says. I got convictions I think that the Bible teaches about how church ought to be done. And I hold those convictions dearly because I think they're from Scripture. And yet, if I'm not careful, I know in my heart how easy it is. And maybe on a walk this week, my wife reminded me of that. How easy it is to find myself boasting and the rightness of those convictions lording those convictions over others. It's easy to think, I got this. Those deluded simpletons, what's wrong with them? Why don't they understand these things, right? Whatever we might think. Friends, that's pride. And that's ugly. Right? That reeks before God. That's nauseating to God. How do you know if you're falling prey to such pride like the Corinthians were in their own lives? Well, friends, it is when the sins out there whether in another or out in society, regularly seem greater and more significant than the sins in here. When you find yourself in that position, the sins out there, always more significant than the sins in here, you're in a dangerous place. You're not in a gospel place. Paul was simultaneously one who could boast in God's integrity and purity that he'd worked in his life and at the same time, he could call himself the chief of sinners. And we may think that person's confused. Paul says that's a mark of a genuine Christian. One who can boast of God's work in their life and yet still recognize what they are apart from it, the chief of sinners. So member of UBC, just pray. Pray for yourself, right? Pray as a church that we would embody Paul here, right? Lives marked by integrity and purity, and in so with all humility. 
So when someone shares with us a sin struggle, our response ought not be to recoil back, sort of put our hand over our mouths like, oh dear me, that is shocking. I can't believe you've done that. I'd never dream of doing that, which is always a lie in some respect. Right? If that's our response, we're totally missing the grace of the gospel. It's not to lean back and recoil in horror, but it's to lean in like with care and compassion and knowledge that such would be us if it were not for the grace of God. And it yet may one day be us if not for the grace of God. Right, we have to pray that humility and sincerity that marks us. That's the mark of Christianity, at least a mature Christianity. Now the evidence, the ground that Paul's behaved this way, he says, listen, it's witnessed in the letters that I've sent to you. Verse 13, he says, I did not write anything that you couldn't read or understand. So it seems that some in Corinth were twisting Paul's own teaching and letters. And we're going to see in just a few verses that Paul had to make a change to his travel itinerary. Right? I don't know, he had his own COVID problems, right? And some use this as an opportunity to say, listen, see, Paul says one thing, but he does another. You can't trust him. Or maybe they've just been deliberately misinterpreting what he has to say. They've been tampering with his own words as they twist them, which is maybe later why in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul will say that we've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So Paul's saying, listen, I'm not some politician. I'm not some promoter. Right? I'm not a spin doctor. I'm not trafficking in deceptions and lies and fake news. I'm not the mastermind behind some grand disinformation campaign. He's saying, I've written to you, and I've written plainly, honestly, straightforwardly. He says, and I intend to be understood. You don't need an outside interpreter. You don't need a secret decoder ring to understand what I'm telling you. Friends, that should be the mark of faithful Bible teaching. What Paul says right there. Lives behind that teaching marked by humility and recognition of the grace of God. And yet also in that life marked by humility comes teaching that is plain and honest. Which means we have to be careful about drawing a stark line between personal convictions and sort of public actions. Public figures increasingly do this. Politicians do this sometimes, others, right? It's become fashionable to say, you know, I believe this to be true in my own heart, but I'm not willing to impose it upon another. You know, I may believe life begins at conception, but I'm not willing to legislate and to impose that. And perhaps there's a hint of humility in that. But friends, just as that example of taking life is morally wrong, it's wrong, period. It's wrong for you, it's wrong for me if it's wrong. And Paul's not saying, I know I behave one way, but you know, in my heart, I really believe a different way. Paul's saying, no, my behavior and my beliefs, it is all consistent and I've made it plain to you, which means Paul isn't just telling the Corinthians what they may want to hear, right? Paul's communicating hard and painful truth. 
There is a reason why, you know, that letter, the third letter we don't have before 2 Corinthians, it's called the severe letter because Paul had to lean into them. And friends, that's sometimes what our Bible teachers have to do for us, right? When our souls are in a spiritual stupor, sometimes they need to be shocked back to life and it's the job of the Bible teacher, a faithful Bible teacher, that they will sometimes have to tell us exactly what we don't want to hear because it's exactly what God needs us to hear. And that's exactly what the Bible is for. So I just loved how Gaddy was willing to pray Ephesians 5 clearly in roles of husbands and wives and just let God's word stand. And if it grates against us, the problem is us, not God's word. Why is Paul boasting though? Why does he say, even at the end of verse 13, I hope you will fully understand. Because it seems they've only partially understood Paul. Apparently, he wants them to fully understand. And notice there in verse 13 how Paul transitions. We've referred to that epistolary we where Paul speaks of himself more generally in the first person plural. But now, notice right here he flips. He flips and he says, I hope. Such is the intensity of Paul's personal hope for the Corinthians, and that personal hope, his own heart, it can't help but break through. He says, this is my hope. I want this for you, that they would know him and understand him. And Paul's boast then, it's not because he wants some personal vindication. It's not because he's looking to clear his reputation. He's not trying to rehabilitate right, his reputation like a a sports star might do right after a big crisis or whomever it might be. No, Paul's concern is much deeper. Paul's concern is that if the Corinthians can't grasp his life and his letters, then it means they haven't yet grasped the gospel. That's why Paul's concerned. And that brings us to just our third, and I assure you, our shortest point, okay? A clear conscience, evidenced by godly character, Thirdly, ensures confidence at Christ's coming. It ensures confidence at Christ's coming. Because what is Paul's great personal hope? The contents right there, verse 14. That on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. So again, why does Paul want the Corinthians to boast in him? Well, recall their temptations to belittle him, at least some, and not to boast in him his sufferings and his afflictions, his poverty and his weakness. Again, they regard all that as evidence that he's not a true apostle. And Paul's saying, though, if you have not yet grasped what I wrote back in my previous letters, if you cannot yet comprehend the paradox of God's power manifesting itself most profoundly in weakness and in suffering, then how can you possibly comprehend the life and death of Jesus for sinners? He says you won't be able to. Paul's saying to reject the messenger is akin to rejecting the message. Why? He says because my life is the embodiment of what I preach. And there's a day, Paul says, when Christ is coming back. That's what's meant by the day of our Lord. The day of our Lord when Christ returns. And on that day when he returns and the curtains rise and the secret thoughts and hopes of all of us will be revealed plain as day. Paul's most sincere hope on that day 
is that the Corinthians can boast in him as a genuine apostle, which means that then he will be able to boast in them as genuine believers. See, if they understand how God works power through suffering, and if they're able to boast in Paul as this embodiment of the gospel, then Paul will see that he can boast in them as genuine believers. Their inability to see this is their inability to grasp the gospel. But their ability to see it is the fact that they now have gospel eyes and can see as they ought. So my Christian friend, don't miss this. Don't miss this. Don't miss how corporate Paul's understanding of the Christian life is. Does God save us as individuals? Absolutely. Praise God. Yes, he does. But notice Paul's concern is not just ensuring he makes it, that he gets to run his own personal victory lap in the heavens. He's not merely looking forward to that triumphant entrance at the pearly gates. I mean, what a hollow victory Paul understands that would be if he is the only one who makes it. I mean, we get this. I mean, think of a, think of a military. Think of you know, Americans at D-Day. We've been watching some documentaries as a family. I mean, think of an American soldier who makes it through Normandy, and he's the only one left. Is he going to celebrate with all those fallen soldiers next to him? No, he will grieve. He will celebrate if as many of those soldiers make it to heaven with him. And that's Paul's concern. That's his concern. That's his delight. That's his passion. That the churches that he has preached and planted would be saved with him and make it home. Which is why as Christians, it ought to be just a fundamental aspect of our Christian lives that we care about others' Christian lives. If we are spiritual people, we should care about the spirituality of others. So in that sense, Christianity has never been a spectator sport, right? We say it's personal, but it's not private. It's certainly not isolated. It's certainly not individualistic, right? Paul's helping us again see it's corporate. And being a disciple means we care about the discipleship of others, which means we give ourselves to discipling others, which is simply another way of saying our passion to be that we see and help others get to heaven. And that's what Paul's doing. Well, if you are a Christian but not a member of a church, you know it starts there. The church is Jesus' own discipleship program. So that's a first thing to do if you haven't done that. But if you have done that, if you're a member of this church, it simply means get involved in the spiritual life of others. Don't be a spectator, right? Be active. Walk alongside another. Be honest. Open God's word. Exhort and encourage as you must. It doesn't mean in the care and discipling of others. It doesn't mean you have to have all the answers. It doesn't mean you're a Bible whiz. It doesn't mean you need to be their savior. They have a savior. His name is Jesus. You're to point them to that savior and walk with them in their life with that savior. So pray and love and care and speak God's word. So just if you're a member of UBC, let me just ask you, who are you investing in? Who are you pouring into right now that they might grow in Christ? Friend, who will you do that with? That would be a great question to think about today. Who will you do that with? Listen, sadly, false accusations will come. Friends, in those trying times, where will you turn? You know, I just did a quick internet search. If you've been falsely accused, 
even in something relatively minor, the consistent counsel was hire an attorney, gather evidence, whatever you do, don't talk to the accuser, and take it up with law enforcement, pursue it in the courts. For what it's worth, Paul does none of that. He pursues a higher court, and he seeks the inner tribunal of a clear conscience, evidenced in godly character that ensures confidence at Christ's coming. So friends, what will your boast then be when others beat you down? Let's pray.